Welcome back to another episode of Working Wife, Happy Life. I am your host, Bethany Baines. I am so excited for today's episode. First of all, because this woman was introduced to me from our first podcast guest ever, Fran Hauser. And I just love the way I am actually recording more and more episodes of people who have come my way from previous guests. So it's a very exciting full loop experience and I'm excited to share these connections and these conversations with with the community here. And today's guest is Jennifer Barrett, who I swear we're living parallel lives. Turns out we live very close to each other and embarked on our journey as breadwinning women very similarly uh, and share a lot of commonalities in our story. She is currently the chief executive officer at Acorns, which is a saving and investing app And she's also the author of the new Wealth Building Manifesto for Women titled Think Like a Breadwinner. I mean, how different for those of us that are breadwinning women as listeners would our lives had been if we were raised to assume that we were probably going to end up being financially responsible for ourselves and for our families. It's a whole cultural mindset and frankly a cultural fix that I think we need to reframe these expectations versus how Jen came into this role and how I came to this role of, oh wow, I'm the breadwinner. Now what? Together we discuss becoming a breadwinning woman by choice versus chance, the freedom that comes through having more agency over our lives, the importance of very specifically identifying your why, intensive motherhood, and so much more. We focus a lot on the positives of being a breadwinner and the pride and satisfaction and confidence that can come when you surpass your own expectations. I wish I had this book in my life decades ago, but I am so thrilled to now have it in my life and have this woman in my life, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Here is Jen Barrett. Jennifer, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining the Working Wife Happy Life podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Um, I have to share, we were just uh, lamenting this day and this week have kicked my ass. And I don't know if it's because I had the week before off of work um, or it's been really busy, um, but I just feel like it's it's 3 p.m. on a Friday and I'm just running on empty. Um, And so I feel like we're not all, it's not always happy life. Sometimes it's exhausted life, but but here we are. Um, But it's Friday, so we have the weekend to look forward to. It is. And thank you so much for making time to be with us at the end of what I'm sure has been a chaotic week for you as well. It has, but I'm happy to be here. Uh, So you are the author of this amazing new book called Think Like a Breadwinner, a wealth building manifesto for women who want to earn more and worry less. And I feel like I could unpack every single word in that title. Um, (laughs) It's just such, I mean, it's the the crux of, of this platform and this podcast and the work that I focus on. And I'm so thrilled to have been introduced to you by our very first uh, podcast guest, Fran Hauser, um, in terms of all the work that you're doing. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for writing this book and thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. It's It's been a, um, 
it's taken a long time <laughs> to get this book out there. So it's really so nice to have it out in the world right now. I'm sure it's like a, it's your, it's a different baby. Mm-hmm. It's a paper baby. That's right. <laughs> Um, what I love about what you're doing is, you know, and we'll talk so much uh, about being a breadwinner and and language and terminology and mindset. Um, but I think what you're really trying to get ahead of is most of us end up as breadwinners without having planned to be. Mm-hmm. And true. I find that in my community, and I'm sure you found it in your research as well. And I feel like what you're trying to get at is let's not have that like, you know, oh my God, crisis for the the generations behind us. Let's kind of start getting people to think about this much earlier on in their life. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, yes. I mean, there has been this paradigm shift, as you know about, and you've talked about in the breadwinning model, but we are still culturally conditioned as women not to think of ourselves as breadwinners or providers or wealth builders. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that really holds us back you know, not just in terms of preparing to fill that role, but really it holds us back from our full earning and wealth building potential, regardless of whether we end up the main earner or not in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And to your point, what really accelerated this shift was the last recession when men lost a disproportionate number of jobs and millions of women suddenly found themselves in the breadwinner role. Um, And, you know, obviously that's one segment of the bread of the female breadwinners out there, but it's um, it's a pretty significant one. And a lot of the women I talked to in that role, I would say the majority of them were breadwinners by chance, not by choice. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important distinction to make, as as you nodded at. Yeah, I I feel like anytime I encounter somebody earlier on in this journey or anticipating that, given their level of success, they're more likely to be the breadwinner. I'm, I am so, uh, envy is not the right word. I'm so happy for them that they have figured that out before they embark on a journey with their partner, just because I think their eyes are opened in a completely, um, different way. But can you share, like, share a little bit about your professional history? Um, why, you know, your path to becoming a breadwinner and, and, you know, you had shared with me when we first met your kind of aha moment Mm -hmm. on, on this space. And I would love to share that with our listeners. Sure. Why don't I start with the aha moment and then I can fill in some of the blanks on my professional life. Perfect. Um, Perfect. And this really was the the seed of the book, although it took many years um, for it to to come to fruition. But for me, my wake up call happened in my early 30s. And at that point, I really thought I was doing everything right, or at least that I was doing okay financially. So I had a good Mm -hmm. job. At that point, I was um, a general editor at Newsweek. So it was a great job. Um, I was married and I was paying half the bills, half the rent. I was putting a little bit in my 401k and savings and paying off my credit card debt. Um, So I thought I was doing okay. And then one night I'm up with our toddler, Zach, and trying to get him back to sleep. And I'm pacing back and forth in our our bedroom and looking around at our little one-bedroom apartment. And it hits me that we are in an unsustainable situation. And if I want to help grow our family, help buy a home for us, I was really going to have to step up and save and invest more for our future than I had been. And that was a real moment of reckoning for me because I wondered why hadn't I been doing that already? (laughs) So I started looking back and, and I realized that I had been subconsciously depending on my husband to really take the lead 
on financially planning for our future, just as my own dad had. He was the, the primary or sole breadwinner for most of my childhood. So I really started to examine what other assumptions were driving my money choices. And then I asked myself, what if I had been raised to think like a breadwinner? What if I had grown up truly believing that I would be fully responsible for my financial future and probably for other people too, would that change the choices I made with my money? And the answer, mm. the answer was yes, a resounding yes. And that's really where it started. I just wanted to be more proactive in providing the income and building wealth because I wanted more agency over my life. And I think that moment was so critical for me because it's, it's not that my husband wasn't saving and investing, but he wasn't earning a lot more than me at that point. Um, and was still kind of finding his financial footing after he'd lost a job. And what I realized was that I didn't want to be dependent on anyone else to ensure that some of these things that mattered so much to me came to be. And that was at that point, you know, having a second child, being able to afford to raise a second child, being able to buy a home of our own, or at least rent a bigger place that could support a family in the city that we loved, which is New York, which is not inexpensive. Um, no. And I didn't want to leave that to chance or leave it to someone else to make sure um, that we could afford those things anymore. I, I love this concept. I mean, first of all, how many children you have is definitely a, um, in some cases, a status symbol in New York because it's a real estate issue, right? Oh gosh, and it's, yes. you know, I can relate so much. I think we're blocks away from each other. Mm -hmm. and, and I had a very similar kind of uh like apex moment in our life where I was like, this, this won't work. Like we need to really dig deep and figure out what our values are, how we want to raise our kids, where we think we can, you know, live a fulfilled life as individuals, as professionals, um, you know, personally, et cetera. And it really becomes a very soul searching moment when you are, you know, Hold, holding this life in your arms, literally in the middle yes. of the night, trying to figure out how you make all of this work. And I think, um, you know, your, your comment to having more agency over your decisions, being able to define what you value um, versus depending on somebody else telling you what you can have and thereby finding your values yes. um, is such a powerful shift in the mindset. Um, how did that like, so, so what happened after that, that moment, you know, that, that kind of awakening? Yeah. Well, I think to your point, when you talk about, um, taking a, a good, hard look at your values, um, and asking whether your values are, are helping to drive your money choices, like are, are your money choices helping to support your values, um, is really so important. Um, and so that was definitely a piece of it. The next morning I woke up and literally, took out a piece of paper and wrote down everything I wanted, like ideal day, three to five years out, preferably mm. three, because I didn't want to wait too long to have another child because our son at that point was already 18 months old. Um, and so I, I described this new place I wanted, I mean, in great visceral detail, like balconies and light filled and close to a park and really as many details as I could come up with. And, you know, imagined having this second child was trying to sort of imagine what kind of work I could be doing, really like placing myself in the future. But what I wanted to ground that vision in was what was most important to me. And I realized like, and this is not true for everyone, but for me, raising our children in New York, and my husband felt strongly about this too, was really important to me. Important enough mm -hmm. for me to make 
short-term sacrifices in order to make sure we could we could support that. Um, having two children, really important to me, or at least trying to have two children. Um, you can't control everything. Um, and then uh, being able to put down roots was really important. Finding a community that we um, really could feel a part of, finding a neighborhood um, that was that really reflected our values, you know, so being close to a park because those things were important, making sure we could exercise, you know, had, had nature nearby, all of those things. Um, and so when I described that vision, I realized that what I was doing was really laying out my values and what was really important to me. And then secondarily to that, but, but really important as well, is that I was understanding my why, you know, why I was going to be making the choices I would now be making with my money, what was driving those choices. Um, and it was something that was so important to me that whatever short-term sacrifices I made, however we needed to cut back our budget or whatever this would take, I knew that this was important enough um, to me to, to justify those choices. And on top of that, I was connecting so much with it emotionally. Like I went and looked at houses. I did everything I could to make it as real as possible. And then I sat down and priced it out um, and had a, a major reality check and a breakdown. <laughs> I, just, I was just going to say, and that's when all your dreams come crashing down. <laughs> there was definitely a moment. It was definitely, I mean, I do remember sort of sobbing at the desk as I was doing these calculations and just realizing how why the gap or the chasm was between, you know, what my savings were at that point, how much I was making, what I'd need to be making and, and putting aside in order to even put down a down payment on some of these homes that I was looking at. Um, but after that, I really got super motivated. I said, okay, now I know realistically what that gap is. And then the question became, and this is really what I talk about with the breadwinner mindset is what do I want in my life? And what are the money and career choices I need to make in order to support that? That really became the conversation. And so I sat down and I, I looked at, okay, how much money do I need to be bringing in? How much money do I need to save? You know, what should I put into investments? What's the growth I can expect? Really started doing those calculations. Um, and what that led to was uh, a series of choices um, in the following months. For one, we, um, you know, they were offering severance packages at the magazine where I worked and I was not on the list. I advocated to be added to the list because I did the math and I realized that that would be a pretty decent chunk of change and I could invest it and I could freelance and try not to touch it. So that was a challenge I gave to myself and, and I, wow. I did it. Yeah, I did it. And I did it in the recession. I put the money in, it dropped immediately like 50% in the following month. Um, and I, for a moment I thought, wow, what have I done? But then I, um, you know, I, I had the perspective of knowing that the market has gone up significantly overall. And my, my mom reminded me of this too. I didn't touch it. And I kept putting more money into the market instead. And so, um, that worked out really well for me and it was a good lesson in investing. Um, yeah. but the second thing I did that was really important was, um, right around the time of this wake up call, I think just after I learned that someone had been hired in a similar role to mine with just a few more years experience and was making 50, 50% more than me. Oh my God. It was, I mean, like a punch in the gut. And what I realized was how much my own complacency had cost me because I never, mm. I never negotiated my salary. I hardly negotiated my raises. I'd gotten three promotions and my salary had not really changed all that much over seven years. And in one moment, I realized the cost of that. And especially now that we, we had a child, I realized what I'd missed out in terms of 
retirement savings and, you know, mm-hmm. and income growth, all of these things, it kind of came crashing down. And I realized I had missed out on probably tens of thousands of dollars. And so I, I felt a little less allegiance, I would say, to my employer at that point. Um, but I also realized the importance of advocating for myself financially. And I just swore that I would never make that mistake again. So I think those two things really shifted um, the trajectory for me financially. So um, when I went out and freelanced, I negotiated hard and I made 50% more that year than I had in the full-time magazine job. So that was really validating and kind of also um, propped up the belief that I had around making sure that you're earning your market value and checking your market value pretty regularly. There's nothing like going freelance to, to do that. Um, and then I moved into a management role. And so within a few years, I had more than doubled my income and I had saved and invested enough for us to, um, you know, to put down the down payment on the home that we're still in today. And, um, and I was pregnant with our second child when we moved in. Oh my God. I mean, talk about like what, what I love about this story is your, your intentionality and your, um, and I mean this word in the kindest way, your obsession with getting <laughs> all of the details so right in that vision exercise. And I actually have a previous episode where we talk about this vision, um, the, the exercise of not being nebulous of like, I'd like enough space for the kids and I want it to be sun filled. It's like, no, I want to live within this proximity. Mm-hmm. I want it to be able to house this many people. I want it to have access to these things because those are meaningful to me. Um, and then being able to apply it with, with rigor and discipline, but also enough emotion right? That Mm -hmm. you were able to make your actions really reflective of your wants and needs and, and to even have those moments that I can feel that punch in the gut when you find Mm -hmm. something like that out. I think a lot of us are, are familiar with that type of, uh, disappointment in something that you felt like you were for so long valued at what you thought was the right value. No, I thought that was Um, a big part of it. But going through those emotions to, again, put more fuel in your fire of why this is such a meaningful mindset and why really being crystal clear on your financial goals actually is less restrictive and more freeing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Was this was this something like, tell me about the, the conversations with, with your partner. Like, was this something that you guys were in it together? Were you on your own kind of trajectory here? Was this something that he said, great, you lean in, I'll take care of this? Like, how did that pan out? Yeah, I think um, I definitely felt, I think, uh, more of a sense of urgency um, about having the second child, getting a place of our own. Um, And so I think I felt a little more motivated to move quickly than him. Um, but he, he wanted the same things too. And, um, so he was, you know, he was very supportive of like, yes, please, you know, if you want to contribute to making this happen sooner, yes, please do it. Um, I think where it got a little, uh, maybe trickier was when I took that role in management. I mean, one of, honestly, one of the reasons why I took it was that, um, was that we needed someone to have a full-time job to get the mortgage. And my husband and I were both on contract at that point. Um, And our mortgage broker basically said, you know, really it would behoove you to have someone who has a full-time income. Um, And so, and the the offer came not long after that. So I took the job and I, I don't think I understood 
really what that might mean because I took it thinking, oh, this is temporary. I'm going to help us get this home or whatever. And um, hadn't really been planning so so thoughtfully for the long term at that point and what that would mean that I'm now on the management track, so to speak. It was my first job in management. Um, and my, my income had jumped quite a bit. Um, and so on now I was firmly in the main breadwinner role. Um, and I think it took a little while to get comfortable with that in part because I was pregnant when I moved into that role and I had our second son not long after. And the expectations that I had had for myself around parenting, around being a mom, sort of collided with the responsibilities that I felt now as the main provider. Um, And it took a little while to work through those. To be honest. I can, yeah. I can so relate. I became my family's uh, sole breadwinner right when I came back from maternity leave after my second oh. child. And it was, um, you know, you just have those moments. And I know you use this phrase in the book of letting go because I just to like, you know, add some color here, but with my first son or my first child, my son, I was, you know, the maniac pumper where, you know, it was breast milk only all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it at work and bringing it home and putting it to the fridge and cleaning the equipment. And my daughter, I came back to work, I pumped one day and I stood up to go move something and I kicked the milk over <gasps> and I was just like, fuck it, this girl's getting formula. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I don't care. You know, you yeah. just all of a sudden you shift your priorities of like, you know, what do I want to do versus what can I do? And, and, and those aren't always the same thing. No, I think that's really true. I sort of, sort of felt, you know, I was, I was actually a little angry initially, I think, because I really hadn't expected or prepared to be in the role. Um, as -hmm. much as I had decided I was going to take action on the financial front and be much more engaged, I, I didn't actually expect that I would be carrying, um, you know, the, the majority of the responsibility financially. Um, and what I realized very quickly is that the world <laughs> doesn't think that you are the primary income earner either. And so, nope. for example, um, with our parental leave policies, not everywhere, obviously, I think Google's is different, but you know, a lot of companies still have maternity leave only. And so with our second, with our first son, I had stayed home for a long time and I had nursed and, you know, and, and had gotten, you know, a lot of it was unpaid, but it was less of an issue initially because my husband was earning more than with our second son, I was now the primary breadwinner. And, uh, so when I took leave, it was doing, we were doing a lot of math. It was, how do I piece together this short-term disability with some vacation days and very few, because I just started, can we afford any unpaid leave? So when I was thinking to myself, my God, you know, so you have the primary earner here and now suddenly you are taking a 35% pay cut just as your expenses are growing exponentially. And then Mm -hmm. sometimes you don't get paid at all. And so you are really under so much financial pressure just as you are growing or starting your family and these expenses are growing. Um, And that was a realization, like my husband got no paternity leave, none. And I was making more than 30% more than him. So Hmm. it was, it very quickly hit home that, wow, you know, our policies don't really line up with the fact that a lot of women are now in this main earner role and we really need the flexibility, um, you know, for our partners to be able to take some time as well. Yeah. Um, So I did bump right up against that. And then 
you know, I was still catching up financially, you know, I was still trying to save and invest and make up for, um, you know, make up for the, the saving and investing I didn't do until I had that wake up call. So this idea that I was now responsible, not just for myself, but for my family at the same time that I was in this new management role with a team and a budget to handle, and it was the most demanding job I'd ever had. And now I was a mom of two. And on top of that, I was really trying to be the main caregiver and the main breadwinner at the same time. Mm. I did not want to let go of that main caregiving role and designation because I worried that that would make me a bad mom. I really did. Yeah. I thought if it's I so, wasn't, yeah. So it's so hard, it is. right? It's it so really hard. It's, it's, um, it's, it's like very much instinctual mm -hmm. and it feels unnatural and it feels, um, it's just very painful, I think, to let that go because one, there's society's expectations, but also we've been raised with these expectations our whole lives. So then to walk away from it feels like an unnatural thing versus the mindset of, oh, I get to share this now yes. because I have a wonderful partner yes. who's able to do this in a way that's going to be completely different than how I would do it and how lucky for our children to have exposure to both. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, if we just thought about this in a more, you know, whole, whole way and yes. a way that this is actually more beneficial and more nurturing, um, it would be better. But instead there's this terrific layer of, of guilt in that pivot. That's so true. And, you know, it took a few years where I really, and I was doing research in it too and reading about it, but I know now, of course, that it doesn't make me a bad mom <laughs> to allow my husband to be more involved as a dad and that there are incredible benefits in allowing the kids to have more time with their dad too, or whatever other parent, you know, the other partner. Um, and there's plenty of research too, showing that it's the quality, not quantity of time that we're spending with our kids. Um, and so, you know, with, with some distance and with some mindset shifting, I can definitely see that now. And in fact, I think back to my own childhood and I've had these conversations with my dad where he has a lot of regrets. You know, he says that he wishes he had more time with us um, when we were kids. And he really has a lot of regrets about not being more involved in the child care, the caregiving when, um, when we were young. And so I look at my kids now and I think, how incredibly fortunate they are that they have, um, you know, been able to experience my husband being so engaged with them as a parent and, and not just me, but really having both of us, um, you know, participating fully in caregiving at different points so that, you know, it's beneficial both for me and my husband to be able to enjoy that, but also for the kids. I wholeheartedly believe that now. Um, but we do, oh my gosh, in our culture, we, we, we really put so much guilt on moms still this, um, I think it's called, there's this term intensive mothering that sort of took off mm. right as women were moving into the workforce, um, that had us really feeling quite torn, um, by our culture's expectations of us as mothers and our responsibilities as workers. And it's, um, I think it's, it's very real. Um, even though the yeah. research, all the research out there, you know, tells us the kids are just fine. If you're a working mom, the kids are fine. It's really about being emotionally accessible to them. It's really about being present when you're with them, you know, all things that are very doable and that there are tons of benefits of having both partners involved in caregiving. Um, you know, it still takes a little while to get used to that and to shift your mindset around that. And all things that we've grown up with you know, generations of fathers who are tremendous dads mm -hmm. and were also primary breadwinners. And nobody was ever saying that they 
weren't present or weren't, you know, I mean, not all of them. And they have certain regrets for sure because of society's expectations of them too, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't have the expectations to change the diapers or do any of those things. So, I mean, there's a lot that is such a a double standard there. And I think it's also, um, you know, just also like I have huge conspiracy theories on the narratives that are out there about, you know, women working and whether or not we're, you know, as present as we need to be for the kids or the breakdown of the American (laughs) family. Um, But, you know, this, this concept too, that you can't have, you know, how could you possibly have the successful career and be a good and present mom? And it's just such a, um, such a falsehood. And I I really, I I feel like there's nothing, you know, I'm home for dinner every night. And now that's hilarious because we're all home all the time. But (laughs) prior to this, like now I'd really love to kill for a business trip right now. Um, But now, you know, it's like I'm home for dinner. Mm -hmm. I'm at the school events. And listen, I work for a company where I'm very privileged and there's flexibility and there's understanding, but a lot of us do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us are able to actually have um, both things and be fulfilled in both parts of, of our world. Um, but I want to kind of shift a little bit in terms of like the, the role. So, it, you know, in your research, in your interviews, so breadwinners mm-hmm. as, as a whole, um, I've found in my community that people actually bristle a bit at the, mm-hmm. at the name. Um, and I'm curious in terms of your understanding, like, where does that come from? Is it because it inherently, leads to a conversation about money that we're uncomfortable with? Is it a term that we, um, you know, feel shame about? Mm-hmm. Are we protecting male egos? Like what's behind this, um, the ruffled feathers of the term breadwinner when it's brought up to women? I think all of those things um, are factors. This uh, reluctance we have to talk about money, but even more so, um, you know, this cultural shaming that happens sometimes when a woman says, I want to make a lot of money, um, mm-hmm. that that's seen as a negative. Um, I would really like to flip that on its head. <laughs> I am like mm-hmm. very outspoken about the fact that I want to make a lot of money. Um, but it's yep. not making money for money's sake. You know, it's because I want to be able to provide for my family, for my kids, make sure that they don't get stuck with student loan debt. I want to be able to give to the causes that I really care about and, and be able to have a real impact. So I think we need to move away from feeling any sort of shame around that um, and see if we can flip that into feeling real pride um, and being able to, to do that and, and being able to, to have that impact. You know, it sounds cliche now, but money is power. And I don't really think we will be able to close these gender gaps, not the wage gap, not the wealth gap, not the leadership gap, um, until we are more comfortable um, in seeing ourselves as wealth builders, as seeing Mm -hmm. ourselves as being fully capable um, of caring for ourselves financially and caring for others and supporting the lives we want. Um, so I do feel strongly that we need to shift our perception on this, on breadwinning. I chose to include breadwinner in the title deliberately, even though I know that there are some negative st- stigmas around it. Um, and in fact, the initial title for the book was The Joy of Breadwinning, <laughs> because I wanted to put it front and center, because I don't think we talk enough about the benefits 
the pride mm-hmm. and the satisfaction that comes with being able to provide for ourselves and sometimes our families, like the confidence that we gain when we surpass our own expectations around earnings or wealth building. You know, to me, thinking like a breadwinner is thinking expansively about our own capabilities and the possibilities for our lives. And that is so positive, so overwhelmingly positive that I really really hope that we can change the narrative around this because right now I agree. I think breadwinner, I think a lot of people, a lot of people associate breadwinning and women with it being a burden. And, and, and certainly a lot of the coverage that we've seen around this hasn't helped. Like after I moved into the breadwinning role and I write about this in the book, you know, I was reading about breadwinners. You know, I started to realize after that Pew Research report came out not long after I'd moved into the the role that said, I think it was 40% at that point of, of moms were the main or sole breadwinners. And that was a huge watershed moment. And suddenly everyone was talking about it. And then this slew of headlines comes out about how when the woman is the breadwinner, the risk of divorce goes up and the risk of the man cheating goes up and you know, women dislike you more and all there's just like these negative headlines one after the other. And I was thinking to myself, like, this is not my experience. I am not seeing my experience reflected in the headlines. So when I was doing research on the book, I was really digging into a lot of research that was cited in some of these stories or even the stories themselves, which didn't always really line up with the the headlines. And one really interesting fact that I found was in that research around the um, the rate of divorce being slightly higher when women were in the breadwinning role, there were a couple really important points. One was that it usually was when the man wasn't working at all, um, and that if a, a man was working and a wasn't a woman wasn't working at all, the uh, chance of a spouse cheating was higher. So it didn't really matter what gender. But the other really interesting one was that if a man picked up um, an equal share of the household responsibilities, it erased that risk. Um, Mm. And so in the book, I talk about this. I said, I don't think the problem is women earning more. It's the problem was men doing less in the house when women are earning more. And so why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we focusing on that? Why are we putting this on the shoulders of the women who are earning more and providing for their families? I mean, I really get very angry about all of this when I think about it because it's really just not fair. And so for a long time, I think we have painted female breadwinners as being a negative thing. And I just so much want to flip that on its head um, because it does us no good. Oh my God, girl. I, I feel like we are just such kindred spirits. <laughs> that is exactly, exactly where I was coming from because, you know, I have to say in the very beginning when these roles switched and it sounds naive, I don't think we knew what the hell we were in for. Mm-mm. I honestly no. don't think we, you know, here we were in our little Brooklyn bubble mm-hmm. and our little progressive lives. And we were like, we got this. Yep. This is going to be great. I can't believe we never thought of this before, you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was reading the same articles you were. And I was like, oh shit. Like, I don't want that life. Right. It doesn't. And, and and yes, there were times in the beginning where it did feel like I was doing everything. And we had to have a few like come to Jesus moments where he's like, you know, you're super hard to help and mm-hmm. I need you to get out of my way so I can do this in my way. And I'm like, okay, but this one thing you've got to do my way. You know, we had those types yeah. of conversations, yeah. which is important to have, but we didn't have any roadmap. We had nobody saying this and everything that was out there was just like, oh, it's going to be a rough road, yes. you know? And it's just like, oh my God, well, somebody help me because this part of my life is going great. And I would like to match it with this part of my life going great. And, and like you said, like we, then you get into this, um, 
this notion of success shame too, of like, you know, I, I think there was this article, the New York Times did something on this where uh, in couples where, you know, the women out earn men, they were lying about oh, it. Oh yeah, to the census. Yeah. Yeah. Census because they're, they're, yes. Right. Their census reports versus their tax yes. returns. And it's just like, I mean, so even that number of whatever it is, it vacillates, I feel like between 40 and 42 yeah. percent or something yeah, in terms of that. households yeah. uh, with children under the age of 18. But how, if that's self-reported, you know, I mean, I just think it's way greater than that. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's it's greater across different racial lines, yeah. um, yes, you know, and it's true. it's I, I just think it's something where again, there's like this toxic message out there that this is a negative thing and that this is going to disrupt the nuclear family Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And I'm very, very suspicious because most women that I know that are either the breadwinners because they earn or out earn their partners or their partners aren't working or are sole breadwinners in their Mm -hmm. house because they're single. Yep. Are, are starting to be very vocal and very proud of that role as they absolutely should oh be. Oh my gosh, I, I'm so happy to hear that. I think we need to be talking about it more um, so mm-hmm. that we can change the narrative around this. Um, yeah, I don't even know where there's so much to unpack from what you just said, but I, I think- um, This is going to be a five-hour podcast. <laughs> I hope you're free for tonight. I do, I do think that, um, I do think when you talk about having no roadmap, um, that that's a big part of it. Because and and to your point when you when you mentioned talking to your husband about doing more and he his response was you got to get out of the way and let me do it my way we had the same conversation my husband and I mm-hmm. um, and what I realized too is that uh, sure a part of it is maybe that they aren't stepping up I, I know we use that language a lot and that's probably unfair too because I actually think most men want to do more and just don't know what to do or honest to God, sometimes just don't notice it. <laughs> just don't yeah. see it. And so it, it is on us still, I think, to ask for help. And, and I talked to got in so many of my interviews where women said, I just took all this on and didn't even stop to think like, I really need to ask for help. I really need to just ask him for help. But then you also need to be willing to let go of your expectations on how that's done. And that is not easy either. I think, um, especially and my mom, you know, was in charge of all of these things. And I thought, I just assumed that I would be in charge of like bedtimes and how our house looked and what we ate, you know, and schooling, all of these things, just as my mom had. So letting go of those things, especially, you know, my, um, I'm more on the organic food front and my husband's bringing home, you know, McDonald's chicken nuggets and, <laughs> and chips and soda and things like that, that I'd even have growing up. Um, that was an adjustment. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think there is a balance there, but, totally um, but it did lead to some very candid discussions slash arguments initially on everything from bedtime to, you know, schools to, to what we ate and how we ate and where we ate and all these, all these things, which I think in the long run actually is really healthy because then you have both partners participating in these decisions that actually impact the whole family. But, but you have to get over those expectations first. And you're bringing those different perspectives and through those conversations, you're unwinding what your values are. Right. So like your, your values, when you, if you get married, walk down the aisle, I always say, you know, the person you're sitting next to on the couch is not the same person you walk down the yes. aisle with. Like yes. things have things changed, change. they've grown. And, and, and I've learned a ton more about myself as an adult versus things that I'm either mirroring or, 
butting up against based on how I was raised mm -hmm. and, and doing the same thing. And so how you figure out your own styles is through those experiences. But, you know, we always called it my lane, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, he's like, stay out of my lane. You've got your lane. I've got my lane, yeah. stay out. Yeah. And, and it's very hard for you to do that as a couple. And it's also very hard, I think, for people in your life, whether it's school or work or, you know, grocery store clerks to understand how our family works. Right. Yep. So he'll get the compliments at the grocery store of like, Oh, and he even remembered the flowers. Oh my I'm gosh, like, the bar is so low. <laughs> they're, but they're not for me. It's oh, not no, this big romantic not. gesture. It's like, we just want them in the house. And yeah. like, I'm sorry, he shouldn't get a hero's welcome because of that. Like it's, <laughs> he's just doing the shopping. Right. And I feel like, you know, there were those things. And, and I will say as our children are getting older, it's coming up less and less and probably one because I'm so damn vocal about this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but also because in many ways with the kids, when they're younger, there's so much, uh, kind of coordinating that you yes, do for them. Yes, logistics. Right? So yes. play dates or yes. school drop-off mm -hmm. or folders or all of that stuff is much more heavy-handed when they're younger. Um, but we really struggled with that, particularly when we had a daughter where we actually had people who would not allow their daughters to be here for a play date if I wasn't home. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, he's a primary caregiving father, right? <laughs> a pedophile <laughs> I mean it was just like so you know and it'd be oh, like man. great play date I'll text mom and he's like go ahead you're still gonna come back to me but go ahead right. and you know those things are um you know I just think if we had a book like yours uh at the beginning it would have really helped us to you know if not launch those conversations have it in the back of our minds as we went through the journey that these are some of the things that are going to come up. Mm -hmm. And so just start, start giving it some thought or get ready for it because it really, some days it felt like, you know, a slap in the face and yeah. some days it, you just felt unseen and it, and it can be really painful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, it helps too when you're having these conversations or you bump up against something like that and you realize what other people's expectations are or, you know, whatever you might have absorbed from your own childhood. Um, but when you have these conversations, when you're doing something that is not the norm, you are then forced to really think about what you're doing and why. And it can be so powerful and freeing in a lot of ways too, because then suddenly you're making choices that are, as you mentioned, like driven by your values, driven what, by what's really important to you and your partner, not driven by what your neighbor expects of you or what your own childhood was like, but really like being very thoughtful and mindful about the choices that you're making. Because, you know, a lot of times we just like roll into these roles. I'm not even sure that I would have wanted the same role that my mom had. I don't think I would have. She was out of the workforce for 10 years. If I had done that and tried to come back, it would have been incredibly difficult, um, yeah. you know, but, but I hadn't really stopped to question those assumptions initially. Um, and then suddenly every assumption I had <laughs> was under scrutiny and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it really helps you, um, to be confident that you're making your choices from the right place, from your own values and from your own goals and desires. Yeah. And but, but there is a, a point of like reconciling, mm -hmm. right? Like what you thought life was going to be, what you thought oh, yeah. things were going to turn yeah. out to versus what they are. And I think that um, 
it's just quite a introspective and, and personal journey. Um, but one, one other thing that you really talked about in the book was kind of this notion of, of building your village and, mm-hmm. and finding the people that, that get you, that support you, that um, you can learn from and lean on. Talk to us a little bit about that. What, how is that, you know, are you still building that network? What were some of the real intentions you put behind that? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's so important to have, um, I call them other breadwinner minded women or women who have kind of a wealth building mindset too, just in part because it's really powerful to talk to other people who are um, further along in the journey of, of kind of investing for themselves and, and building wealth and thinking really strategically. Sorry. It's okay. Um, about their career path and all of these things, there's a lot we can learn from it. Um, but but also because, uh, you know, and this is both in being in the breadwinning role, but but also as you're moving up in your career, um, we are still quite often the onlys in the room, and that can be very lonely and isolating. Um, and so I found it to be so powerful um, and so important, you know, to my own mental sanity and my ability to continue to progress in my career to find other women who were in similar roles. Um, not always in my company, of course, because I was often an only, but for example, um, I was a founding member, I am a founding member of chief. Um, but there, you know, there are a lot of chiefs now there are lots of networking groups for women. So I think, you know, that's, that's been a huge boon in the last few years. Um, but I'll, I'll speak just to my experience at chief was we formed these core groups where, um, they were curated groups and you were paired with other people who were around your seniority level and sort of in your um, sector, but not necessarily. And um, I am so tight with these women now. And I think one of the things that was so amazing to me was how we mirrored each other's experiences. And we started to realize that what we thought was, um, you know, was a deficiency in us. Um, was actually a shared experience, um, was really a deficiency in the system, and that it wasn't really that we needed to fix ourselves necessarily. I mean, obviously, we can always become better at, at what we do and how we show up. But but um, it was a huge realization for me because I internalized so much that had happened in my career without really putting a critical lens to it um, and was always putting it on myself to do things better, to speak differently, to dress differently, to show up differently. Um, and, and it's, God, that's exhausting for one. You're always, you know, am I wearing the right thing? Am I, you know, am I too sexy, not sexy enough? Is my, you know, is my voice loud enough, too loud? You know, this kind of constant modulation of the way we talk and dress and and show up for others is exhausting. Um, first Mm -hmm. of all, but, um, but that internalization that I'd been doing for so long kind of came to a sudden halt as I was talking to other women. I mean, I just remember sharing, I, I can't even remember the exact experience, but it was, a, I was talking about a, an exec meeting that I had been in where someone had talked over me and I really felt like I couldn't get a word in. And I was kind of just describing the experience and saying, I really need to be able to figure out how to speak up more and, you know, and be heard and I'm doing it all wrong. And I, it was this constant, like sort of beating myself up for it. And the whole group just sort of looked at me and said, we've all been there, Jen, like this happens. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a problem that you have to fix. This is a problem that your company may have to fix in ensuring that everybody is heard in a meeting, you know, and that doesn't necessarily solve the problem right away, but it does um, help you to realize that this isn't all on you, that there are really some systemic 
issues that we need to deal with in the collective. Um, and it shouldn't all be on the individual to try yeah. and contort ourselves to whatever the, um, the environment is. If the environment is unfair or if, you know, or if there are biases in the environment that really needs to be addressed as well. So that was one thing that was so powerful. But the second part of it is I think we've gotten really good as women, I think, at building each other up around our careers, you know, really supporting each other in, in our advancements. And we're getting a little better about talking about money around that. You know, what are you asking for if you're in a, you know, if you're a, um, in a small business owner and how much are you making? We, we're getting a little better about that piece of it too, but we still don't really talk about wealth building. And I just keep imagining mm -hmm. what if we gathered together and talked about building wealth in the way that we talk about building our careers, just imagine you know, mm -hmm. what we could accomplish. So I, I hope that we make that shift, you know, in the coming years that we become more comfortable talking, not just about how much we make, because it is important to talk, um, to talk more about that, to ensure we're getting paid what we're worth, but also talking about how we're investing our money, how we're building that wealth on the right. side. Um, it's just so important. It's so important. And it's something that, you know, there was just an article in the New Yorker, um, an anonymous article written by a woman uh, who had like a big windfall from an IPO. Mm. And it's a, there's, I know the story. I mean, I, I yeah, that could it. Be yeah. A, it could be a whole episode <laughs> so on its own. Oh my gosh. Um, but it is, you know, first of all, would, would, would a man even, need to write an op-ed. No, they're mm -hmm. just like, oh, cool. Six million. Well, fuck. Now I'm going to try and make 10 million unapologetically. Sure, right. Sure. Like it's just buy that house that I had an eye on, you know, like different mindset. And, thing, right. and this woman is just unpacking so much of what has been ingrained in her in terms of insecurity across um, finances and relationships and partnerships and um, disclosure and, and, and sharing in, you know, success and all of those things. And, and she's apologetic and she's mm -hmm. uncertain and she doesn't feel that she deserves it. And it's all these things where it's like, I don't know a single male millionaire that's gone through any of those thoughts. Completely agree. None of them, yeah. none of them. They're just like, I'm going to go live in Vienna for a year. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, yes. great. You know what? Do it for the rest of us. Right. Like it's just <laughs> these, these things where, you know, we, and there's, there's a shame to it as mm -hmm. well. I actually shared with my husband that, um, I had a conversation with my close girlfriends here in Brooklyn the other weekend about, um, our personal finances. And it was, it was surface in a way that we were just talking more like logistically, mm -hmm. right? Do you share a bank account with your partner or do you, you know, are you joint? Are you separate? Like, how do you do this in your household? And everybody had a different setup, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, but it didn't get too deep right? Because there's different income levels, there's different, uh, you know, dual income versus single income households, there's all this stuff. And it gets to this point where women just shut down. And yeah. they feel like this is something we don't talk about. We don't talk about our investment strategies, we don't talk about our debt consolidation, we don't talk about our um, long term goals, we don't talk about our retirement plan, like, mm -hmm. we don't get to that spot. I don't know how much men do on like a very tradition like a typical level when they're just hanging out watching you know sports. a game or going sports or whatever <laughs> whatever they it is that they do um 
but there's a it's a much more welcome space for them when they want to engage. And so that's why I think there's almost like this forcing function where it's going to feel very unnatural for us. And we have to break down that barrier because the rest of the world isn't doing it for us. Yes, I completely agree. And I just one thing that struck me about that story really quickly was there is a line in there. And I wish I had it right in front of me because I'm not going to remember it exactly where she said that she had never wanted to depend on someone else because of the experience of watching her friend's parents divorce and the mom had been a stay-at-home mom. Um, and she realized what could happen when you're so dependent on someone else and, and the father lost it. I can't remember the whole story, but he you know, had invested badly or something and they ended up in a really bad position financially. And she says that, that there's that one line where she says, oh, at least now I don't have to worry about that. And, um, and that was the line that struck me because that is what's so powerful about breadwinning um, mm-hmm. And then the way she says it as if, oh, thank God I got this windfall and now I don't have to worry about this. Um, I don't know why that that hit me so hard as if here's a woman who made a strategic decision to work for a startup knowing that this is a possibility, right? This was not like she happened to, you know, fall into a startup and she happened to purchase her, you know, get her options, you know, all of these things. It's like, so often we act like, oh my goodness, I just happened just to make this into salary. It. Yeah. And I think I did a little of that too. When I first became the breadwinner, I was sort of like, oh, well, you know, I wanted to get this job so that we could get the mortgage. And, and I felt like I was making excuses. And I almost sort of said, well, I was so lucky that I, I remember saying this, like, oh, I'm so lucky that I got this management job and blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, that was not by chance. <laughs> I literally sat down and said, what income do I need to earn? Where am I? Like, what mm-hmm. are my options here? Moving into management is a smart thing to do. It was very conscious. Um, but I do remember at the beginning, not really um, taking responsibility for that or even taking pride in that. I think that's starting to shift. Um, yeah. I think with money too, to, to your point, I remember conversations or parties. There's one in particular I mentioned in the book where I was at a party when I was in my 20s and all the guys, they were all journalists, were all talking about their like trading stock tips. Like I invested in this stock. I'm up this much. How much are you? You know, just really having that conversation about kind of trying to one up each other. And literally every woman in the wor- in the room just like we completely fell silence. And it was this really awkward silence. And then we turn mm-hmm. to each other and start talking about what we're doing that weekend. And I, that has stuck in my head for so long because I just thought, oh my God, what if at that party we had been talking about investing, you know, right. I would be in right. a very different place today, or I would have certainly been in a different place when I had that wake up call and how beneficial would it have been for all of us if we were that comfortable talking about investing and we were able to um, separate it from who we were, right? Because some of those guys were like, oh, I lost a little bit on this stock, but I'm going to try again with this other one. It wasn't like, there was no shame in it. Yeah. Yeah. There, it, it, Exactly. I think that's, that's the, you're hitting on such a key is the shame that for some reason uh, we've been socialized to carry through, through those conversations, through those engagements, whether it's success, whether it's money, whether it's um, even buying nice things for yourself. Sure. Right. I remember the first time I bought a car, I bought like a used BMW and I remember pulling up to work into the parking lot and having this moment where I'm like, who do I think I am (gasps) driving this fancy car into work? I felt like everyone was staring at me and I wanted to be like, it's used, you know, like just (laughs) just put a little decal on the back. Right. And now I, I obviously have, have bucked that, that, uh, you know, self-consciousness, yes. but it's, it's there, it's there and it takes a lot of work to get through it. And I think the goal of, of the work you're doing is to get people 
there faster or to make sure they never get there. And I think that's a tremendous, tremendous contribution. Thank you. That's my hope. Yes. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to rush out and get this book because if you already think you think like a breadwinner, this will make you feel so reassured and so supported. Um, And if you're not sure what it means or what it would mean to you, I think this book will be a tremendous guide. So Jen, thank you so much for your time. Um, And we will link to the book and all your social handles on the episode notes. And I'm so thrilled that you spent this time with us. Oh, me too. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated.